You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, July 3rd, 2007, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Perry DeAngelis. Good evening. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Welcome to the dog days of summer, everyone. That's the best you've got? Well, today's the official first dog day of summer. The what? That's not even a what? thing. You made that up. No, it's not. I'm, I'm looking at it right now on, on the internet. It must be true. Rebecca, you've never heard of that? <laughs> I've heard of the dog days of summer. I you think it was don't real? think that there's an official dog day. According to this website. And tomorrow <laughs> is a very special day, as everybody knows. Tomorrow, July 4th, is Bob's birthday. Bob's birthday. Yeah. Oh. Happy, Happy birthday, Bob. Happy birthday. Thank you. Also Independence Day. Bob, how old are you? Uh, according to that carny, 32. The, bl- the blind carny. Do you smell like cabbage, Bob? <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to tell us how old you are in reality, Bob, if you don't want to. You're younger than the country. And of course, happy Independence Day out there to all of our fellow Americans. Oh yeah, that too. Yes, yeah. Unfortunately, we have to start this show with some very sad news. Barry Beierstein, who we interviewed actually just a couple of months ago, a very nice guy, passed away last week very unexpectedly. From what I hear, he had a uh, massive heart attack. Apparently, the, the story that I have so far is that he passed out the week before, was admitted to the hospital, was evaluated, was essentially cleared. But uh, because of the episode, a cardiac workup was planned. But before it could be completed, he then had a massive heart attack oh, and died. Oh, God. Steve, what would have happened if they gave yeah. him the exam before the heart attack? Well, it depends. You know, he could, they could have had either uh, a bypass or angioplasty, you know, to, uh, and that, that could have prevented it. You know, if they, the workup were done quicker or if he just didn't have a heart attack so quickly after his initial symptoms. Do you know if an autopsy is performed? Uh, I, I have not heard either way, but I doubt it. It's not something that, unless the family requests it, it's not something that would be done routinely. Well, I mean, it's another, you know, it's another kick in the teeth for the, the skeptical movement, that's for sure. Yeah, it's, it stinks to, to, to lose good people so young. He was only 60, so it's definitely an, a premature uh, and unexpected death. Uh, of course, our sympathies go out to his family and his daughter. His daughter um, actually blogged about uh, her father. We'll have the link to that. It was very nice. And Barry was a fellow of the uh, Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, and they, they've been putting out... Um, you know, retrospective and, and uh, tribute to him as well, so we'll link to that. Well, you said in your blog, Steve, that, you know, when you when you peel it all away, the the sort of core of the skeptical movement really isn't all that big. Yeah. And and we get to know these people, you know, you in particular with Barry, uh, and it's it's a real loss when uh, when we lose some of these people. Yeah, it's a, it's a close circle, you know, of the inner circle of the skeptical movement. It, is, it isn't that many people. Really, and you do get to know everybody, and you do feel yeah, like four you, or five of us. Yeah, you do. It, it, it hurts. It, it really like is that. a big loss when you lose somebody like Barron. And also, I also said he was, again, without exaggeration, the single nicest guy I've met in the skeptical movement. He was just a really nice guy. And I think if you listen to the interview that we did with him, it really comes across. He's just very, very upbeat, cheery guy. Yeah, he he definitely was one of those people that everything was. A good mood. Everything was was positive, mm-hmm. and uh, he just you know he just made me feel good just talking to him on and off the air. Yeah, uh, he was surprisingly yeah. lively. That's one of the people that we most need in the skeptics movement because it 
shows people that we're not just all cynics. There are people out there who are, you know, enjoyable to be around. Yeah, we certainly don't do that. I mean, no, we, <laughs> yeah. we do the opposite of that. So, yeah, <laughs> right. it's definitely going to be missed, though. Definitely. So this is our, our the Skeptics Guide tribute to Barry Byerstein. He definitely will be missed. So long, Barry. The next news item is actually you have two herbal remedy-related news item. The first one has to do with black cohosh, uh, which is uh, an herb that is used for women to treat uh, the symptoms of menopause. The article discusses the fact that there have actually been quite a number of cases worldwide of, a, of sudden and total liver failure. Uh, related to use of this herb, of the herb black cohosh. The liver is one of those important organs, right? Yeah, that's, it's, kind of, it's kind of an important organ. So th- this uh, discusses four new cases in Australia you know, of complete liver failure requiring liver transplant. So you know, that's, you know, that's complete. Basically, they would have died without a liver transplant. We, again, we point this out because, yet again, it makes the point that herbs are drugs. There's nothing magical or different about them. They're not, you know, somehow not drugs just because they're derived from plants. They're drugs. They can have the same risks as drugs. They can have organ toxicity just like drugs do. And they really should be researched, marketed, and regulated like drugs. And I think Right, and the thing is, I I think at this point, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not sure, but um, we're not positive that the black cohosh caused the liver damage, right? Because... It, from what I've read, it seems like it just hasn't been studied enough at this point, and we don't even know the extent of what it will do to a person's liver. Or, And there are a lot of other possible side effects it might have, but because it's not studied in depth in the way that you know your regular medicine would be, mm-hmm. then we just don't know. Well, that that's sort of true. We don't do have the kind of clinical trials that we would do prior to a drug being on the market, but... Uh, even when drugs get out on the market, there is still uh, the aftermarket research that's done. And this kind of information that we have on black cohosh is exactly the same as the kind of information we would have after the market for drugs. If right. the same number of people taking a prescription drug you know, had liver failure and had to get liver transplants, the drug would be pulled from the market or at the very least, the data would be reviewed. It would probably get a black, what we call a black box warning in the United States where the FDA you know, puts a black box warning on the drug. They might include the requirement for monitoring of liver function tests uh, while on, on the medication. But none of those safety precautions are now in place with black cohosh because it's not a drug. It's a supplement. So Yeah, I think that the worst that's happened is Australia has put a, some kind of warning on the label saying that the product might contain black cohosh, with might, which might cause harm to the liver. Right. Steve, do they know what the doses were? Because almost anything can damage your liver if you take too much of it. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Is that in, and in general, um, we don't really have a good idea of what the dose is in the herbal preparation because they're not controlled well enough to really know what the actual dose is in an individual pill or preparation or lot or whatever. So the answer to that is no, although generally the... the um, amounts of active ingredients tend to be on the low side because they're not purified. It tends to be lower than prescription drugs. But the bottom line is you don't know. And it could be that it's this is cropping up in those products that maybe have a higher than average 
uh, concentration of certain constituents in the black co- cohort, certain chemicals. Again, lots of questions we don't have the answer to because it, research is not required prior to marketing these Because things. our laws are insane when it yeah. comes to supplements. That's why. They're not in line with the science. No. And the, and the supplemental safety bill has been languishing in Congress since '03. Can't get anything passed. It really, it's created a, an insane environment. Unfortunately, it'll probably take a lot of deaths before people really start seriously you know, considering regulating uh, these supplements. Yeah, we've joked about the fact that it will take probably a celebrity death you know, to really bring the issue to the forefront, that just regular deaths may not be enough unless it's actually a large number of them. It actually didn't result, you know, there were about 100 or so deaths linked to ephedra, and, and that didn't really change the market wow. at all. It just, but it was enough uh, evidence for the FDA to pull it from the market. So the FDA can't block herbs from getting to the market. But if they, if the FDA meets a burden of proof that it's harmful, then they can use that to pull something from the market. And since 1994, ephedra is the only thing the FDA has been able to pull from the market because of evidence of that it wasn't safe. Uh, and and that's being challenged. That's being challenged by some of the companies who who make ephedra. So we'll see if the FDA. I mean, six deaths or a dozen deaths, whatever, probably are not enough evidence for the FDA to pull black cohosh from the market in the United States. Um, again, they have a, they have a pretty high burden of proof to prove something is unsafe before they can take it off the market. Again, it's completely backwards to what would what would really make sense based upon you know a scientific approach. Maybe Paris Hilton can do something useful with their life. <laughs> Just a thought. Just a thought. All righty. Um, the other herb-related <laughs> news has to do with echinacea. There is a recent meta-analysis. Ooh, it's almost a bad word on this we podcast. We know how we feel about this. Yeah. <laughs> Published looking at 14 studies that looking at the efficacy of echinacea as an herbal extract or an herbal supplement in the treatment of uh, the common cold. And the, uh, the researchers concluded from the meta-analysis that the research supports uh, the use of echinacea for, for tr- the treatment of the common cold, that it reduces both the risk of getting the cold and the duration of the cold if you do get it. And, of course, this has been now widely touted in the media and, of course, by people who sell uh, echinacea and, and promote herbs in general as the vindication or evidence that echinacea ac- actually works. But the lay media has missed, basically missed the point that this is not new evidence. This is just a reanalysis of old evidence. And it's not a particularly good analysis or reanalysis of this data because, uh, again, all of the weaknesses of meta-analyses are in play. These are different studies with you know, d- different preparations, different outcomes. They you know, did try to use reasonable selection criteria. You know, by the, only the abstract's been published by this point. I couldn't find the entire article um, by the time we're recording this. Uh, this is sort of a pre-online publication sort of press release with the abstract. So the full paper is not available yet. But from what I could find, you know, they, they made the reasonable attempts to, to do a, a decent meta-analysis. But the problem is in the, is in the data itself, that these 14 studies you know, have serious problems. And a meta-analysis is just the wrong way to look at this complex set of data. And, and this is the kind of thing that's generally missed outside of 
you know, epidemiologists or researchers or, or medical experts that when you have a, a question such as this, such as, you know, do preparations of echinacea treat the common cold and the research evolves over many years with different kinds of studies getting done and then those studies get criticized, better studies are designed, and then, you know, hopefully eventually you have some large, well-designed consensus trials that where the results are, are robust and, and fairly definitive. The, those kinds of trials, those you know, placebo-controlled, what we call class one trials, have been done with echinacea, and they were all negative. All of the recent studies that have, that have the best design were, in fact, negative. A couple of years ago, the New England Journal of Medicine published an excellent study looking at three different preparations of echinacea with an experimental uh, form of rhinovirus, that's a you know, common virus causing the cold, and showed absolutely no effect in any, in any outcome measure uh, of the uh, echinacea. To that point, Dr. Greg Coleman of the University of Connecticut, uh, regarding that point, he said that, that that study only looked at part of the picture. Yeah, they always say that. So, and well, yeah. reading some of the sites, what they say is, well, you know, you could use extracts from different parts of the plant, different ways of preparing it, and you know, any negative study you can always criticize by saying, well, they they looked at the root and not the flower, or whatever, or they looked at this kind of species. There's actually three species. They looked at this species and not the other two species. So you're you're never going to be able to look at every possible preparation of echinacea. So any any, any negative study you can always say. It's only looking at part of the picture. Yeah, but what, he, what he's yeah, but what he's saying regarding this, the New England Journal of Medicine um, results, was that uh, this doctor was saying that there there are more than two hundred kinds of viruses that cause cold, and uh, the team that did this particular study only looked at a rhinovirus. So right, that, again, that's well, what he's sure. that's what he says at this point. Yeah, again, you, you can't study absolutely every permutation of echinacea with every permutation of the common cold. So the best studies that were done. In a, you know, in, a, in a very reasonable representation of the common cold, a common virus that causes it with various preparations of echinacea showed no effect. That, I don't think that's really a valid criticism. That actually comes around to bite them in the, in the behind too because if, whenever they use that argument to say that the, that the negative studies are not definitive – it also means that well if you're so if you have a cold and you get some random echinacea product off the shelf the probability that you're getting the right matchup of the right preparation with the right, right. virus is also pretty minimal too yeah and and yet most of the evidence is anecdotal but by their same argument that anecdotal evidence has to be unreliable i think that a better way to analyze this data is is with what is called a systematic review because that takes into consideration things like uh, the consistency of different studies, the way the research evolves over time, the quality of the studies and how that relates to the chance of it being positive or negative. And there has been a systematic review of the same data uh, that they're now publishing the meta-analysis on, plus you know, more, more studies. Again, that's so-called systematic uh, by the by so-called Cochrane Review, which is uh, linked to um, evidence-based uh, standards. And they basically found that the evidence does not support the use of echinacea for the common cold. Surprise! The data is inconsistent and, and, and not sufficient to, to say that it, that it works. So, Once again, we demonstrate that the word meta-analysis is just there to send big sirens off in your head every time you read it. That's like your little right. skeptic alarm. <laughs> Steve, I have a question for you. Yeah. A lot of times when you hear the drugs like this where there's a very good indication that they don't work, you know, like echinacea is a perfect example. If a real pharmaceutical company did real testing 
as if they were going to create a brand new drug out of it. Wouldn't you know if you if you think of it that way? Wouldn't it be blazingly obvious that it doesn't work? Instead of it being kind of like always like that, well, you know, we're not really sure and there's all this meta-analysis and they redid this and that. I mean, if, if it was done the right way the first time, the way that drug companies do it to get ready for FDA approval, it would be 100% of unequivocally it doesn't work. Well, nothing's 100% unequivocal, but what you're saying is if they went through the FDA process where they, they had to have trials that were, that were um, monitored, that had to have, be, have a rigorous design, that were like multi-center, that had, were statistically large trials, right. then yes, you're going you know, to get a much better result out of those and much more likely the results are going to uh, reflect the, the underlying reality. But do you see my point, though? You see my point, though? Yeah, in this case, the, the waters are muddied because there's a lot of crap. But all studies, of these, all of these types of drugs are. The, it's always, it's always like the waters are muddy situation. Why don't they just do one yeah. definitive study, spend the money, and that's it, and that'd be done with it? Well, because you got to find someone willing to invest hundreds of millions of dollars into something that probably isn't going to work. Well, then they should put the the onus should be on the people who are selling it that are making the hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, feeding the, the world this crap. That's a fair Wait point. Wait a minute. You're saying we should have better supplemental laws? It's a great idea, yeah, Perry. It's a good wow. plan. <laughs> write an act one. up, stick it in huh. Congress, and let it rot. Somebody write that down. Yeah. Someone tell the FDA <laughs> yeah. that. Make That's note. the whole point. The, the, the research <laughs> is generally not going to get done if the, if the industry is not required to do it. The NIH does fund some of this research, and the research that is being done that's of any quality is largely you know, government-funded. So that's how we get what information we do have. But, and, and it's enough that if you are an unbiased you know, scientist, you can look at the, the data and say, yeah, this is you know, not supported by the evidence. But it's not enough to completely silence the proponents. You know? But not, I don't know that anything Nothing would be is. enough. That's but, right. Yeah. The next uh, news item also involves uh, similar kind of interpretation of, of similar types of study. This one, however, looking in the, uh, in the legal realm, uh, U.S. juries get verdict wrong in one in six cases is the title of this study. This study was done out of Northwestern University, and they looked at uh, a number of criminal trials, uh, not capital uh, cases from four different major cities between the years 2000 and 2001. And they found that when judges made, uh, handed down a verdict, that they um, were mistaken in 12% of the cases and that jury verdicts were wrong in 17% of the cases. So again, pretty similar numbers, a little bit higher in the jury, again, about one in six cases. Also, very interestingly... They found that uh, the mistake was more often in the direction of convicting an innocent person than setting the guilty free, which is contradictory to the philosophy of the American judicial system, which is to basically favor the error the other way to yeah, you know, and, rather and sending, the, sending guilty people free rather than imprisoning the innocent. In the article that we'll probably link to from the notes page, I thought it was really amusing that it actually says the good news is that the guilty didn't have a great chance of getting off. Right. <laughs> it's like, are you, are you actually reading what you're writing? <laughs> that's not good news. This isn't good news at all. Yeah. I mean, there are some systems where it's supposed to, the error is supposed to be biased in one direction, you know, uh, and, and in the judicial system, it's supposed to be biased towards not convicting innocent people. So this is the opposite of, of you know, what it's supposed to be. What, what I found really interesting about this whole approach is that, first of all, it, it showed that it's plausible to look at outcome measures of the system, of jury and judge decisions. And I, and I do think that 
systems like this do need to have the same kind of quality control feedback that that science in general has so that you know we could see how well is it actually working and then take steps to to improve it and then see how those steps work and then that way the system can evolve and become better and better just like science does and just to clarify steve so people know the way that they figured out right uh, what's right and wrong right they they did that by comparing um the amount of times that judges and juries disagreed on mm-hmm. a verdict and I think that figure was was something like six seventy seven percent. I think um, the agreement 70, rate was seventy seven percent. Yeah, they they agreed, which that's a huge amount of times that they're disagreeing. And so figuring that one party must be wrong, that's how they came to their conclusions. Yeah, although I couldn't figure out from the information that we have, because this is a again a yet to be published study, so we don't have the, the full details. Is um, when they disagreed, they knew that one of them had to be wrong. But how did they figure right, out which one which was wrong? One? Yeah. I'm assuming that they went with the, the the last one to the more recent to, one. They assumed was the, the correct the, one. Yeah. Says we know there are errors because someone confesses later or there's DNA evidence. Yeah, but did they use those criteria in in this study? That's what I guess. No, I don't think so. I think it's just. Yeah, I don't think that they would have that as as a tool to use every time. Yeah, I think the only criterion was the fact that there was a discrepancy between what the judge said and what the jury said. That's what it sounds like, yeah. It's a tough thing to study. I mean, they did this with 290 cases, and it's impressive that they even tried. Because yeah. it is a tough thing to study. And then really, again, at the end of just this piece, they said, well, okay, assume this is all correct and it's happening. What's the fix? Mm-hmm. And they said mm-hmm. that's a lot tougher. Oh, yeah. And they think it's mostly because if you have gone this far in a trial, people assume that you're probably guilty. Yeah, you're right, Perry. I mean, just think about it. That you, I would think I'd have to do something so heinous to get that far. Well, the other thing, the other factor is that it's, it's probably true, and this is I certainly have heard this as the quote-unquote conventional wisdom, that most people who get arrested and find themselves in front of a jury or a judge probably have committed other crimes. And they're, they're probably, you know, their criminal behavior is probably not isolated to that incident that got them in, into the courtroom in the first place. And some juries or judges may convict people because they figure that they're probably guilty of something. Preconceived notion. Even though the, the evidence may not support their guilt on this particular crime. But I'm not, because I'm not defending this, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that this is appropriate, but I'm saying, but this is probably one of the biases that is shifting the system in, in this direction. But how do you fix that? I don't know. Robocop. <laughs> Robocop? Judge yeah, Dredd? Robocop. I don't know. Pretty yeah. sure he was never wrong. <laughs> Judge Dredd. Judge Jury and Executioner. One more news item. This one comes from the UK. Uh, yeah, that's important. <laughs> this is funny. <laughs> the Church of England bishops have been warning society that immorality and greed of modern society is what has brought floods as the judgment of God down upon us. <laughs> I love this article. That's 100% true. There's no other explanation. Right. So that. he said, uh, this is a strong and definite judgment because the world has been arrogant in going its own way. We are reaping the consequences of our moral degradation as well as the environmental damage that we have caused. That's actually so... Yeah. 
God's mad at us for causing environmental damage, so he sends floods. Yeah. <laughs> I'll show you. I'll show you environmental damage. <laughs> and then he compares so, society to ancient Rome. I mean, that's what also are you I f- talking about. I found that funny because the Roman Empire actually survived much longer right. than the average empire. So that means that God must have really liked Rome. <laughs> right. To let it survive as long as it did. But uh, I never this- understand the the whole God will take his revenge and you know God will show us and he kills all of these innocent people and kids, you know, and old people. It's like, you know, if God's going to do something like that, the innocent end up getting punished. Yeah. And they say, they make some comment about that, that he said that the problem with environmental judgment is that it is indiscriminate. Yeah, it's a bit indiscriminate. Uh-huh. Yeah, that is a problem. Maybe you should take that up with your God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how about some more, like, precise bolts of lightning, you know, striking individuals or something like that? Yeah, this like was that. a good old days. Or some really big solar flares would be cool. Some singular I noticed smiting. that God didn't get even with the church for having sex with all those little boys, though. So he's inconsistent no. as well. Uh, the tolerance, well, tolerance of homosexuality is high on their list of why God is pissed off at us. That, that, that right. is in here. But don't, Jay, that, that of course was the Roman Catholics, okay? These are the Anglicans, so let's not, let, let, let's not mix our, our people. Well, what up do they here. have? Yeah. Uh, here's a quote, Roman popery here's a quote from the right Reverend Jim Jones. Interesting name. Um, Jim Jones. <laughs> that's the guy's God. Uh, <laughs> people no longer see natural disaster, disasters as an act of God, he says. But we are now reaping what we have sown. If we live in a profligate way, then we are going. Then there are going to be consequences. Yeah. It's good to know. That was from the Reverend uh, Jim Jones. Saint Peter's coming. The right Reverend Jim. Jones. Before or after everyone drank the Kool Aid. I've got a, I've got a couple couple good quotes here. The gay and lesbian the gay and lesbian humanist associations chairman Jim Herrick. Uh, came out with a couple good zingers. He said the bishop's comments revealed reveal a primitive, superstitious mind that belongs in the Bronze Age. And he said, no wonder people are abandoning the Church of England in such huge numbers when it is led by silly people like him. See, that's See, how he? God is punishing the Church for all the that pedophilia. They're, he's converting everybody to unbelievers. <laughs> Take that. That's right. Makes about as much too. sense as anything else they claim he does. I mean, obviously, the, the, the logic behind all of this is terrible. It's like, whatever happens, it was God's will, and God did it. And if there's a flood, if there's no flood, or whatever. And, of course, they could draw any correlation they want and, and rationalize it any way that they please, which is, of course, why it's utterly meaningless. But it, it, it is medieval superstition. Fire and brimstone, kind of, you know, beware oh, yeah, the wrath off, of God. It's riddled with that, the fear thing. You know, fear God. God fearing. And right. at the end of the piece, you know, they shove Katrina in here, too, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. Isn't that what Jerry Falwell was all Ubiquitous about? Ubiquitous. Uh, uh, Billy Graham, actually. Oh, remember that? Uh, Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son. There's been satanic worship in New Orleans. There's been sexual perversion. God is going to use that storm to bring revival. God has a plan. God has yep. a purpose. It's a regular Sodom and Gomorrah down there. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's move on to your emails. First, the first email comes from Christopher, who insists that we do not shorten his name to Chris. And Christopher writes, Hello, my skeptic warriors. I am I like that, of Chicago, fucker. Illinois. I do too. Uh, he, gets, he gets points for that. You're like a comic book guy. Uh, go ahead. I have a plus one Mace of Reason. Oh, my God. Uh, I knew that was going to happen. Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, you <laughs> never played D&D. Mace of Reason. 
No, I've never played D and D. Of course you have. He's a vegetarian hippie. He's not allowed to play D and D. God. Oh my God. Anyways, I have been listening since this May and finally caught up with all your podcasts. I am sure you get enough thanks, but thank you for the show. Actually, we never get enough. So, no. It really does bring hope into my life, and I am sure it brings hope to all your listeners. Uh, here's the question. He has, actually, it's a very long question in two parts, but I'm going to no. just add, read part of it. <laughs> Condense it. I have only one question in 47 parts. <laughs> <laughs> I hear from my old friend that latex condoms have little school. tiny holes that the HIV virus can That's travel right. through. Therefore, he chooses not to ever have sex ever. This frustrates me. I'm sure it frustrates him, too. Uh, Since I took the time to look up this information on the Internet and pretty much found nothing. The only thing I found that said condoms do not protect was religious websites. So that's his basic question is, does a latex condom protect against the transmission of HIV? And he had trouble finding reliable data on the Internet. All he found was religious websites saying that that, that it doesn't work. Well, the CDC has... A uh, information on this, and with actual scientific information. In fact, that's the Center for Disease Control. Yeah, the CDC is the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia. And actually, I recently was reading an article where I discovered why the CDC was created in the first place and why it was located in Atlanta, Georgia. Does anybody know? Uh, Science um, science trivia question. They like jambalaya to protect people against social diseases. Was it uh, town and the Spanish (laughs) flu, Steve? Nope. Uh, Malaria. Coca-Cola? Malaria. It was set to uh, uh, as um, as uh, part of the war on malaria in the southern United States, which actually worked quite well because we eradicated malaria from the southern USA. But now, of With course, Asia. It, <laughs> right, it uh, is a study for, for all you know, infectious and transmissible diseases, uh, including HIV. And on, on their website, they have some pretty good information that shows that the... Uh, that latex condoms are actually quite effective in preventing the transmission of HIV. Of course, nothing is 100% effective. Yeah, the, you know, the idea that latex condoms don't prevent HIV is... It's extremist religious propaganda, and it, it's one of those things that just does so much more harm than good, especially in places like Africa, where they're mm-hmm. telling people that not only does it not help, but it's actually... They're, they're saying that it's actually causing the spread of HIV and AIDS Mm -hmm. and so people are are not using condoms and it's just so stupidly misguided that it it makes me want to just throttle someone yeah it's It's, criminal it's it's deliberate misinformation and it kills condoms save lives the body count attached with this nonsense right so it is true that nothing is 100% except total abstinence but you know using latex condoms is a highly effective method for preventing the transmission of HIV. So that is uh, utter misinformation. Yeah, so give your friend those websites, and uh, if he still doesn't want to have sex, then you're just going to have to find someone else. Give it up. <laughs> I'll tell you, I think that guy's using it as an excuse because he can't get any ladies. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of AIDS, so I won't, I won't uh, have sex. No, I think that's it. You just can't find a woman, Jack. Did that excuse work for you, Jay? <laughs> Anyone who knows me knows that that's Burn. not funny. <laughs> he had no comeback. Burn. <laughs> All right. True. The next email comes from 
Adam Finley in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Adam writes, My sister, after dealing with a crying and screaming baby for several long days and nights, decided to take the baby girl to a chiropractor. I'm not a medical expert, but I've read enough to be skeptical, so I questioned her about it. We had a long discussion, but here's the main point I don't entirely understand. My sister says all the nerves coming off the spine control different parts of the body. So if a nerve is pinched and causing pain somewhere... A chiro can unpinch that nerve and relieve the pain. I know some chiros claim that they can affect, say, things like asthma by manipulating the part of the spine connected to the lungs, which I'm fairly certain is nonsense. I'm fairly certain about that, too. (laughs) However, if the baby does have a pinched nerve, can the chiro actually unpinch that nerve and kill the pain, which may or may not be causing the baby to cry? Without killing the baby. Yeah, without killing the baby. My sister claims that this is true because her husband suffered a brain injury a few years ago, and during his recovery, they stimulated various parts of his spine to see if he could feel in other parts of his body. A little lower, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Just trying to wrap my head around all this, and I'd like to know what, if anything, a Cairo can offer in this instance. Also, I was very concerned about a Cairo handling a two-month-old, but my sister claims he's very gentle, and I'm so... Still not convinced it's a good idea, though. Two months oh old. Yeah. I, I hate this Isn't story. a lot of safety I mean, data with uh, manipulation of two-month-old, two-month-olds. So, you know, obviously, we've, we've talked about chiropractor before. I think this is one of the, one of the you know, the worst aspects of, of uh, unscientific chiropractors, the manipulation of infants and, you know, the treatment of colic. Colic is basically... Yeah, what is colic? It's, it's, a, it's a very vague, nonspecific syndrome. It's basically a fussy, crying baby when you can't figure out what's causing it. And right. it's just lumped in. It's just called colic. It's, a, it's not really a specific medical entity. It's thought that it's like it's just uh, um, abdominal the, discomfort. Behaving? Yeah, it's basically it's basically a colicky baby, just a fussy baby that cries all the time. And again, the, the suspicion is that it's mainly um, gastrointestinal discomfort, but that's not really proven. And most of the time, you because know, babies obviously can't tell us what they're really feeling; they just experience discomfort and cry. Uh, I do so. That. It is it can be a very frustrating situation for the parents and for the baby, um, and some parents may really struggle for a very long time to get their pa- their baby to be you know happy and quiet. It could be you know really um, a, it could be a serious problem in some cases, but it, but it's you know there there is no reason to assume that it's a pinched nerve. In fact, it's very unlikely. You know, babies' uh, spinal columns and their bones in general are very flexible. They haven't. You know, had enough time to form any degenerative changes or any bony kinds of changes. There would have to be some very specific pathology to be causing an actual pinched nerve in the spine. And there's no evidence that manipulating the spine can unpinch a nerve. In fact, an actual pinched nerve is a contraindication to back manipulation. Wait, wait, wait. Can you? What? What's a contraindication? It means you shouldn't do it. Okay, thank you. You're, you're likely just, to make I just it worse. To clarify. You'll, you'll cause more damage to the nerve uh, by right. by doing that. You know, in, before we um, give, give physical therapy or any kind of manipulation, you always have to clear a patient to prove that they don't have nerve compression at the spine before you do that. Um, and again, to, to, to emphasize, there's no evidence that chiropractic manipulation can unpinch nerves. Uh, and there's also no evidence that what they treat is due to Steve, can I read something for you from this uh, website called colichelp.com? As your child is being born, the neck and back vertebrae can go out of alignment due to the stretching and compressing of the body as it emerges into the world. 
If your delivery included a prolonged pushing stage, forceps, or vacuum extraction, or other form of assisted delivery, the chances of a misalignment are great. What do you think of that? Yeah. That's a Cairo website, obviously. Yeah, they just make that up out of whole cloth. So... Because colic is a frustrating, poorly understood entity, it becomes a lightning rod for quackery. For any, anybody with something to sell can claim that it treats colic, just like arthritis and you know all fatigue. And asthma. And In fatigue. this case, though, even more so because you're combining something that's not well known and not that well studied, or maybe well studied but not well known, with with the fact that it's parents who are freaking out about yeah. the baby. I mean, that's right. what parents do. They're highly protective and they're going to do anything they can to, you know, treat the baby as well as they can. But why take it to a freaking chiropractor? This woman's dragging her two-month-old to a chiropractor. Desperation. Because, they're because Perry, they're going online and they're reading things like what Jay just read and they're saying, oh, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense and that must be it. You know, Adam's sister, she just doesn't have the information. She doesn't know. Most people out there don't know. So there are a lot of desperate parents out there who are looking for alternatives, and they find that kind of nonsense online, and they'll try it out of desperation. You know? And eventually something's going to work, because eventually it stops. And, you know, and uh, they, when they see a chiropractor, they're, they're, they're not thinking quack. They're thinking, yeah, they're thinking med- a doctor. medical doctor. This yeah. is somebody who is not going to do something dangerous to my child. So they're probably thinking that worst-case scenario, they take it to the chiropractor, Practor and whatever is wrong with the baby is not fixed. That's worst case scenario. They yeah. don't really imagine the worst worst case scenario, which is that the chiropractor could seriously mess up this baby. Yeah. Well, fortunately, you know, babies are pretty flexible and they're not as easily injured as adults are. So they they probably weather it okay. The other thing is if the if the chiropractors are gentle, then they're also probably not doing anything. You know, if not that, not that, not that if they do something, it actually works. I mean, but at least I'd rather have them do nothing than than do something harmful. But gee, to, to trust your two-month-old baby in the hands of a non-physician? Well, you basically, Evans, say it like it is: in the hands of, of most likely a person who believes in magic, who has a, who has a very bizarre belief system that is not based upon science or reason. The next email comes from Patricio in Brazil, and he writes... Wait, I know a Patricio in Brazil. You do. Maybe it's the same person. (laughs) This link tells us that the solar system actually came from the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy currently orbiting and being eaten by the Milky Way. I've searched on the Sagittarius dwarf dwarf galaxy and found out that it is true that the galaxy is currently interacting with the Milky Way, and it is true that it's actually raining down stars in the area where the solar system is now, which I found surprising and very interesting. What I don't buy is the conclusion that the solar system was actually a sun of this galaxy and not the Milky Way, apparently explaining why our solar system is not aligned with the Milky Way, and the Milky Way is seen sideways to us in the sky. I then reached a paragraph at the end that concludes that this interaction between the two galaxies is raising the quote-unquote energy levels of the Milky Way, causing the sun to burn hotter. Ah, the plot thickens. Uh, Perry is now probably liking this guy. It seems to me that this is the result of one more attempt to explain away global warming as not caused by human action, now that the latest IPCC report has left less room for the global warming skeptics to maneuver. I definitely do not have enough astronomical knowledge to argue with most of the stuff these guys are saying, but it looks like crap to me. I would love to hear you take on this. Maybe an astronomer guest could also shed more light on the subject and tell us more about the very interesting story 
about the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy and our other close neighbors. Late congratulations on the 100th episode. I'm holding my breath for the 1,000th episode, 17.3 years from now. <laughs> well, years. Uh, I'm not going to get into the global warming part of this. I haven't really you know, heard that myself. I don't think anyone seriously is proposing that. No, it's pathetic. We don't need to talk about that anymore anyway. Come on, guys. Uh, I just wanted to mention that just today uh, there was a report released um, saying that there was no link between cosmic rays and global warming. Really? Yeah. Uh, in, fra- in fact, um, Fraser Kane. Uh, who does mm-hmm. astronomy cast um, wrote an article for Wired Science, and we can, we can have the link on the notes page. Um. But the 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 core claim that the the sun in our solar system came from the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy and is not native to the Milky Way uh, has been thoroughly debunked. In fact. Phil Plate, the bad astronomer, has done a very thorough job of analyzing and debunking this claim on his blog, which we'll link to. So we don't have to have him on the show because I can just tell you what he wrote in his blog. (laughs) Basically, there's a lot of problems with this hypothesis. The first is that the sun is, in fact, uh, in the plane of the galaxy. And the stars from the dwarf galaxy, which is oblique to the plane of the Milky Way galaxy, are not orbiting in the plane of the galaxy. They're orbiting at at an angle. So right there, it pretty much rules out that the sun is from the dwarf galaxy. The second thing is that our sun has a ratios of heavy metals like iron that match the stars in the Milky Way and do not match the stars in the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. So just in composition, it looks like a Milky Way star. Um, Also, the notion that... The Sag- so the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy is in fact being cannibalized by the Milky Way. It's a smaller galaxy. You know, two galaxies collide. You know, if one's a lot bigger than the other, the big galaxy just eats the little galaxy. So that's what's happening. And these stars are just being incorporated into the Milky Way. And where the Sun is right now is kind of close to where the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy is intersecting the Milky Way, but it's not right in the stream of stars. So it's actually far enough away that, in fact, that's an argument against us coming from the Sagittarius Galaxy. And also you have to note the fact that since we're revolving around the... the, uh, the Milky Way galaxy, you know, millions of years ago, we would have been halfway around the galaxy from where the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy is. So it, our position is not objectively near the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. It's just kind of near now. But historically, over, we would have been at every other point in the galactic disk away from the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. So that's actually not a point in the favor of that position. Are there any points in favor no, of this? No, there's no, there's no line of argument that legitimately argues that their sun came from the Sagittarius Dwarf right. Galaxy. Then why argue it? Well, it was just a, an observation that, hey, we're kind of near where this galaxy is. Maybe we came from that galaxy. But on closer inspection, the arguments don't pan out, as I, as I described. Also, Steve, the, the other point uh, that he was saying is, is that if you, if you look at the Milky Way from the Earth, and I mean, if you have very little light p- pollution, you'll see a huge, it's really fairly distinct and r- quite beautiful. And that's basically just you're looking towards the center of the, of, of the Milky Way and where the, where the stars are so much more dense and you could, you could just see mm-hmm. so many more stars and, and dust and all sorts of stuff. So it's, it's kind of... Um, now that the plane, the plane of the Milky Way doesn't match the plane uh, that Earth 
the Earth of our solar system or the way the Earth orbits the sun. So this guy is trying to say that um, this has been a puzzle for to astronomers for years. Really, it's not a puzzle. Uh, yeah. The orientation of the plane of a solar system can be pretty much in any direction, depending on numerous factors. Uh, it doesn't have to be in the plane of the galaxy itself. So that right. that was one of the main premises uh, that he was that he started his article with, and it's, it's clearly wrong. It's just a false premise. Yeah. We have one more email. This one is a follow-up to our piece from uh, last week about the Belgium Skeptical Society being sued and on the brink of non-existence. This one comes from Anne Fried de Vrie from the Netherlands, and she writes, Thank you for a good podcast in the latest edition drawing my attention to a case that happened in my old country, the Netherlands. I have been living in Israel for nearly 10 years. The case of Sikes versus this skeptical group, whose name I can't pronounce, is indeed a terrible miscreant of Dutch justice. I very much hope that VDK will appeal to the Supreme Court. And then uh, he gives links to their blogs about it. She has the links to the podcast and uh, graciously links to The Skeptic's Guide and talks about the fact that um, Perry was... What's the name of this blog? The the name of the blog was... uh, I can't quite make it out. What does that say? Uh, Perry DeAngelis is tight. (laughs) Perry DeAngelis is tight. Perry (laughs) DeAngelis is light. Light. Okay, that's it. Perry DeAngelis is right. Uh-huh. Basically, to, just to quickly reiterate, the uh, Sikes is a woman who's promoting some kind of manipulative uh, alternative medicine, and the skeptical organization listed her as one of the top 20 quacks uh, in the Netherlands, and they were sued for slander, and, uh, the, and the lawsuit was successful, and part of the judgment was that they have to take out advertising all over the country saying that she's not a quack. And Perry made the point that um, if he ran a skepticalization, he absolutely wouldn't spend a dime to advertise that somebody like her was legitimate or, or was not a quack. And uh, so, so Anne is basically agreeing with Perry, which I think we all also agree with him on that. It would be a shame to lose the 125-year history to have to come up with a new company, but it's worth it. Yeah. yeah. It's worth we it. also had a, another worth. email um, from somebody who was giving us just some legal follow-up who was saying that uh, there is still an appeal left. They can't appeal to the Supreme Court, basically. And that he actually offered as a lawyer to give them any any help, but only if they're going to appeal the decision and vowed not to give them any money if – uh, in, if, in fact, they're going to use it on these uh, advertisements, these court-ordered advertisements. I sure hope they appeal. Yeah, so we'll have to, we'll have to continue to follow this case. Uh, hopefully they will appeal. Hopefully, you know, justice will it be done in the end. So, again, we'll have to keep an eye on this case. In her and, blog, she writes in, uh, in Dutch that uh, Mrs. Sickens is a quack, and it, it goes, uh, I can't even pronounce this. It's funny. The, the quack in Dutch is quacksalver. Quacksalver. That, quack that they actually coined the term. The term quacksalver is taken from the Dutch. Yeah. So they, that term is actually that was the original term. A Dutch term. Yeah. Quacksalver. I, I like that. Benjamin That's Franklin cool referred to it way back when. In is that right? Some of his That's writings. Cool. Yep. Talking about mesmer. <laughs> no no probably. doubt. Probably. No doubt. Wow. Way to, way, to, way to allude to one of our first podcasts, Steve. Right. So Perry, how does it feel to be written about? Uh, well, I've I've been written about most of my life. Various medical institutions, <laughs> psychiatric facilities, <laughs> yeah. tickets. nothing new, actually. It's old hat to you, Perry. <laughs> it, is, it is. Are you tired of being right, Perry? 
It's, it is a burden to be right all the time, isn't it? It's a burden. <laughs> well, we have some of us. Some of us are born to it. We do have one name that logical fallacy this week. This is uh, an email that was sent to us, and we're going to we're going to use it as our name that logical fallacy. This one comes from Anathasios Zacharacopoulos. Well from, done. <laughs> from Athens, Greece. And he writes, Hello, guys. Thank you for a very entertaining podcast. I tune in every week only because of its entertainment value, and you are doing a great job. To assume the role of arbiters as to whether it is science or pseudoscience on almost everything under the sun, it is simply arrogant. Ooh. <laughs> you are using very simplistic arguments, which you call logical reasoning, when in many cases things are much more complex. You are acting as if you know everything, every subject matter. Come on, guys, a little humility. The fact that you do not grasp certain concepts does not make them wrong and candidates to ridicule. Couldn't this be a measure of your own intrinsic limitations? Just a question. Best regards. <laughs> you, you have to be cautious before you send, send a, a really critical email to us because we just <laughs> might use it in our Name That Logical Fallacy section. <laughs> <laughs> not because it's critical. You know, we're, we're, we're open to logically valid criticism, of course. But there are a couple of points in this article, that, in this in uh, this email, that are, are fairly typical. First of all, the f- the fact that we analyze scientific claims and and we pick out those that are especially egregious or dubious in order to expose them doesn't, I think, equate to arrogance. You know, it's like accusing every single movie critic of being ar- arrogant, every type of critic of every kind of being arrogant. You know, it's it's just it's scientific analysis. This is what scientists do, and we're just bringing scientific analysis to those people who are essentially lurking in the shadows of science and trying to evade evade the critical light of science. The other point that he makes is basically accusing our arguments, accusing us of using simplistic arguments, and then just labeling it logical reasoning, when in many cases that the the topics are much more complex. And this is really just an unfounded accusation. And uh, in, it's a bit of a non sequitur. It's also, in my opinion, a, an ad hominem attack. Because right. essentially what he's doing, and I pointed this out to him, and I responded to his email, and I pointed this out to him, is that you know, we, you know, we're open to criticism. If we've made a misstatement of fact, or if we have committed a logical fallacy in our arguments, point it out to us. And, and, we'll, we'll, and if it's valid, we'll make a correction, which we have done in the past. So I, I challenged him to do that, and he, he actually couldn't do that in, in, re, in response. Uh, so what he's doing in this email is trying to focus on us personally, calling us arrogant, that we lack humility, that we're simplistic in our All approach. All which is true. Don't get us wrong. <laughs> true or not, it's still an ad hominem logical fallacy. It, right. Rather than actually bringing up points that relate to any specific argument that we made. Um, it's, basic, it's, it's, it's a very common tactic for dismissing criticism, just to attack the, the criticizer. Basically. And then there's just the basic straw man of saying that we, we act as if we know everything yeah. on every subject matter. When we again and again and again say, well, you know, all the evidence isn't in on this yet, or this isn't my area of expertise, but, you know, I think right. we're constantly trying to qualify ourselves. Exactly. And, and speaking personally, this entire podcast, I've gotten uh, like what like seven things wrong thus far. So, <laughs> so you know, we're definitely 
always admitting when we get things wrong and when people write in and clarify things for us, I think we're pretty open about all of that. So I think that's definitely a straw man. Yeah, and, and also when we get out of our area of expertise, we try to distill the consensus of scientific opinion, not interject our own opinion. So we, we are not I, – I don't think that we are inappropriately setting ourselves up as – uh, experts in areas that we do not have expertise. Uh, what I, I did point out is that actually, there, but there is a a certain type of expertise that we do bring to the entire endeavor at the Skeptics Guide, in that we are, I believe, very experienced, even expert skeptics. And skepticism is, in my opinion, a legitimate uh, intellectual, even academic area of interest that brings together various disciplines that are, I think, very important. One is knowledge of logical fallacies, of, of logic in general, of, of, this, of how to make a valid argument. Another is mechanisms of self-deception, the psychology and neurology of memory and perception and illusion and even st- like stage illusion and magic. Uh, the nature of scientific research, of peer review and uh, replication, etc. These various fields that we have endeavored to study and to become knowledgeable about and to bring them all together to give us the tools, the skeptical tools, to analyze claims to truth, especially those that are unusual, bizarre, on the fringe, on the borderlands of science. Sometimes we talk about things that are barely science but are are legitimate, even though they might at first seem unusual. And of course, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, interesting but bizarre or absurd claims. Uh, And and part of it is to to understand why people believe really absurd, bizarre things. You know, how is it that people can come to conclusions that are so demonstrably false. What is the malfunction in the human brain that allows that to happen? So I do claim, collectively for the Skeptics Guide, that, that is, this is an area of legitimate expertise of ours, and that's something we always try to teach in these podcasts and, and to bring to bear in our analysis. One of the lines that you read, Steve, you said, you're acting as if you know everything, every subject matter. Come on, guys, a little humility. Well, you know what? We read up on these topics before we discuss them. We try to get as educated as we can in the time allowed. And, you know, is that, if that's us acting as if we know everything, well, we do know our subject matter. There, there is a little right? bit of the Alex Trebek syndrome in that, you know, we have the answers in front of us, which is why we can, you know, kind of look smart sometimes. It's because, you know, we just, we just read up on it to prepare for the podcast, you know? Yeah, especially the neurological stuff. This letter is juvenile. I mean, it, it's really, it's pathetic. But it's Keep typical. On. But, Perry, it's very typical. Okay. I, I include it because I've heard all of these arguments a thousand times before in emails from other people. Agreed. Let's go on to science or fiction. Yeah. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics and my listeners at home to tell me which one is the fake. There is a theme this week. Yay, the theme. theme. It's a big theme. The theme is medicine. These are all medically related oh, items. God. It's not a theme. It's not a theme. It's a theme. It's not theme a theme. It is. It's medicine a theme is a theme. theme is cross-dressing dictators from the 20s. That's true. Medicine that's, 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 a, that's a narrower theme. It's, it's hard to find three <laughs> items in such a narrow theme. So, Hey, yeah. if I can find any theme at all, I'm happy. Okay. <laughs> the theme this week is science. No. <laughs> <laughs> or fiction. <laughs> all right. Item number one. 
A new study finds that teens can become addicted after smoking just a single cigarette. Item number two, researchers have found that stress can cause obesity. And item number three, researchers have found that an extract of elderberries can successfully treat asthma. Jay, go first. Well, these are, these are interesting. Teens can become addicted after smoking one cigarette. They can become addicted to nicotine. Well, yes. What level of addiction are we talking about? What are you... Fu- <laughs> Just answer the question. <laughs> Jesus. That's, that's me. You people always do this. That's me stalling so I can think about it a little bit more, you jackass. My. So addicted that they have to smoke a carton a day. <laughs> uh, I don't think... I don't think that after one cigarette... Nah, I don't think that. That's... I don't think, continue going on. Stress can cause obesity. I definitely uh, agree with that. Right. And Perry, I'm sure you agree with that as well. Um, and uh, the extract of elderberries can treat asthma. I have no clue. I'm going to go with the cigarettes as being the fake. Okay, Evan? I'm leaning towards what Jay is saying, that I don't th- think that there's a study saying you can become addicted, or teen can become addicted after smoking just a single cigarette. Okay, Rebecca? Uh, I'm going to say... I don't know. I can believe the single cigarette thing. Um, the single cigarette theory? The single cigarette <laughs> was, theory. Was, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I think I'm going to go with the stress causing obesity. Okay. That seems like it makes sense, but I think you're, you're zigging when we think you're zagging. Okay. Bob? Um, the single cigarette one sounds, um, doesn't sound very likely. I mean, I, I could see that maybe there's some people that, uh, one cigarette could kind of give them such a, do something that uh, gives them some level of addiction, um, very, very minor, I would think, after one, but it doesn't seem impossible. But Bob, full physical addiction? Just Well, I mean, he didn't say physical. Right, there's, there's different. T- yeah, is it the chemical addiction or is it just the? Uh, That's why you know the, the physical addiction. He did. He didn't specify. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that. That that is it's plausible, feasible. Um, stress can cause obesity. That sounds. That seems, seems like um like a no brainer to me. That sounds very likely. Um, extract of elderberries treating asthma. I'm gonna say no on that one. Okay. That's fiction. Okay, Perry. I have to agree uh, with Bob on number three. Aren't elderberries poisonous? What are they use in arsenic and always arsenic. Lots of things are poisonous that they use wine. in medicine. You idiot! That's it. They put it in elderberry wine. Anyway, number three is false. The extract of elderberries. Yeah, right. So you guys are all over the place this week. Oh, sure. <laughs> of course, I was drunk at the time. Sorry, your mother smelled so. of elderberries. I'll just take them in order. Your father smelled of elderberry. Hey, don't talk about my father. <laughs> yeah, really? God's sakes. Did you say you're going to do them in order, Steve? Yeah, I'll, I'll just do them in order. Oh, um, boy. The title of the first news item I used is Inhaling from Just One Cigarette Can Lead to Nicotine Addiction. Wow. So that one is, in fact, science. Uh, what this shows was, and this is interesting because the the neurological, physiological mechanism of addiction to nicotine is different than the mechanism of, of uh, you know, on a reductionist, you know, neurological, biochemical level than the mechanism of addiction to most other things that we studied, such as uh, barbiturates, narcotics, cocaine, uh, heroin, etc. 
Uh, and in, in many ways, nicotine could be even more addictive. What they found is that the amount of nicotine in even a single cigarette is enough to saturate all of the nicotine receptors and cause symptoms of nicotine withdrawal. What they also found is that um, for young and new smokers, that smoking a single cigarette can actually treat the symptoms of nicotine withdrawal for weeks. They may only have to smoke one cigarette every two or three weeks in order to treat those symptoms of addiction, huh. the irritability, trouble concentrating, cravings, restlessness. And that as, as you smoke, one of the things that happens over time is the, the, the duration of time that smoking will treat the withdrawal symptoms from, from nicotine addiction decreases. So uh, the, the longer you smoke, the more frequently you have to smoke in order to keep the withdrawal symptoms at bay. Uh, of course, until you're smoking, you know, two packs a day or whatever, you know, the advanced smokers you get to. So that was a little surprising. Uh, and certainly I was um, surprised when I saw that headline. So I, th- I thought that one would be challenging. The second one, researchers have found that stress can cause obesity. Who, who was thought, thought this one was fake? I think that was me. This one is also science. Ah. This one... Uh, also is a little tricky. The connection between stress and obesity is in the stress hormones, which are steroids, and it's known that they do shift metabolism in the direction of fat storage. But this is the first time a study has specifically linked stress to obesity in in this kind of research model. They actually looked at mice, and they had um, several groups in the study they had mice that were under stress and mice that were not under stress and mice that were getting a, uh, a diet that had a lot of fat and sugar in it and mice that were not getting a lot of fat and sugar. And what they found that only the group that both had was subjected to stress and also had the high fat sugar diet became obese and they got abdominal obesity, the, the, the dangerous kind of obesity. Um, and also had you know more uh, higher risk for um, insulin resistance and for fatty liver and a lot of the bad consequences of that kind of obesity. The interestingly, really interestingly, the high fat and sugar group, but without the stress, didn't become obese. But they they in fact didn't gain any weight at all. The uh, the high stress alone group actually lost a little weight. They didn't become obese, and of course the group with neither didn't gain any weight. So you needed the combination of um, more fat and sugar with the stress in order to cause the obesity. The, wow. the, the purpose of the research um, is to hopefully find out biochemically what is it that, you know, from about chronic stress that does lead or contribute to obesity and to hopefully, you know, pharmacologically short-circuit that connection. You know, we've talked a lot about dieting and weight gain and weight loss before on the podcast and how, although there are obviously, you know, f- physiological uh, factors at play that the the dominant factor is calories in calories out and, and I still think that's true but one of the it is true that if you if you give people steroids they'll gain a lot of weight and they'll redistribute their fat in a very abnormal pattern so there is a, a real significant sort of physiological forcing of fat storage when you chronically expose people to lots of steroids and I guess this shows that stress by itself, chronic stress can do that in addition to like taking exogenous, you know, steroids. 
So that's, that was a very interesting finding. But all this means that researchers have found that an extract of elderberries can successfully treat asthma is, in fact, fiction. That one is fake. And you, you, you took a real story and, t- and twisted it. I did. I did. I, I saw there was, a, there was a, a press release having to do with elderberries, and I couldn't resist using a news item that had the <laughs> word elderberry in it. I just knew it would prompt. Because you're a nerd. Because I'm a nerd, and it would prompt a, uh, <laughs> a quote from, what's that movie? Um, Monty Python. Yeah, Monty Python on the Holy Grail quote. You got so. arsenic and old lace out of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, elderberry is just a funny name. I had to use it. So, but the study, it was actually about a study that's just beginning, so that not a study that had results already, so I couldn't use it as a real item. Otherwise, I would have. Uh, so I just use it as my fake item. So there, this is the, they're planning a study looking at elderberry extract to see if it uh, will be beneficial for, for skin, basically as a skin yeah. care product. Although there's other studies going on, that, that, and there's lots of interest in a specific chemical called anthocyanin, and it's actually a category of compounds that are found not just in elderberries, but lots of berries, lots of different kinds of berries. And it's an antioxidant, and antioxidants still garner a lot of interest as possible therapeutic agents, although they they really had their heyday back in the 90s. Uh, You know, they didn't pan out as well as, uh, as people were hoping. I mean, some people were touting them as a as a panacea, you know, reducing oxidative stress, and which is the cause of all sort of aging and degenerative diseases. It turns out that we probably naturally evolved a pretty good balance between oxidative stress and antioxidant uh, mechanisms. And that if you, if you, again, if you force it too much in one direction, if you take a lot of antioxidants, that you may be causing more harm than good. That, you know, that the oxidative compounds may be necessary as part of our you know, natural defense system, for example. Well, wait, how could it be bad to sop up these free radicals careening around damaging DNA? How, how could that be bad? Because they may be serving a beneficial purpose in the body. And if they were all bad, you know, and we make natural antioxidants. Why wouldn't we just make more antioxidants naturally and sop them all up? Because, because it, it doesn't pay to do that later in life. Yeah, I mean, th- th- that's all plausible, but the, the thing is... You know, plausibility only gets you so far. Eventually, you have to show that it actually works, and it, it's hard to it's hard to figure out from basic science principles what is supposed to happen in the body because it's just such a complex system. At some point, you just have to see what actually does happen, and it, again, it just turns out that empirically, the the, the bottom line, long term clinical benefits of antioxidants really haven't materialized. Uh, and in fact, there's a lot of studies that show that long-term high-dose antioxidant use may be associated with higher risks of things like heart disease. So we shouldn't assume that just because it seems to make sense that antioxidants are a good idea, that they in fact are a good idea. But again, this is still an area that, that needs further study, le- legitimately needs further study. Uh, all the implications have not been worked out. There may be certain disease states where antioxidants are still useful, but they certainly have not been established as beneficial in routine supplementation. And in fact, there's evidence to show that we should be cautious about using them, especially in high doses. You just blew my mind. Yeah. Seriously, blueberries out. What's in? Cake? Is cake good for us now? Something else needs to take the place. What kind of cake? Um, elderberry cake? Bunt cake Elderberry cake <laughs> Elderberry cake Elderberry pie like Okay, yeah, let's say that's good for you With Cool Whip on top All the whipped cream <laughs> All right Well, nice good work, job, Barry. Bob and Perry, right? Yeah, that's yeah. all right Good job, guys yeah. Thank you All right, Evan, please uh, tell us 
Read last week's puzzle and give us the answer. Okay. Last week's puzzle was, in fact, a logic puzzle. So you had to identify the sixth number in this sequence. First five numbers were 0 0.426, 0 0.424, 0 0.420, 0 0.420, and 0.409. So what would the sixth number in that sequence be, everyone? No idea. No clue, nope. huh? I'm going to take a guess. Well, the answer is 0 0.408... And what this sequence represents is the highest batting averages in Major League Baseball since the year 1900, in order. You're kidding. <laughs> no, I kid you not. So, so it was. Uh, so the trick was to recognize that uh, the that this sequence actually involved uh, baseball and batting average. A lot of Yankees. And in on fact, that we list. had several people on the message boards. Uh, go along those lines and make their attempt at the guessing. But, in fact... But who was the winner? The winner was Canuck from Vancouver, Canada, who came up with 408 first. So congratulations to Canuck for being the first one to get it right. So a Canadian got that right. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? A Canuck, if you will. And then some people went on to kind of moan a little bit, and they realized, oh, baseball, and, you know... Yeah. Not bad for a filthy Canadian, considering it's not even a hockey question. <laughs> right. Well, they have a baseball team, right? Don't they have, like, the uh, Toronto Blue Jays or something? Yeah, they, they do. do, in fact. They still have the Montreal Expos, too. Well, Evan, give us this week's puzzle. Okay, this week's puzzle is a trivia question. For everyone, I know how much we all like trivia questions. And it is as follows. In 1967, a famous building was attacked. The attackers attempted to use supernatural abilities to drive out its evil spirits and to disfigure and displace the building with its occupants inside. The attack failed. So, gentle listeners, name the building that was under attack in 1967. Good luck, everyone. Thank you, Evan. Interesting as always. Yeah, I found it interesting. Perry, do you have a quote to close out the show for us? I do. It's as follows. The primary tool of science is skepticism, whose light shrivels on questioning faith. That was by Mike Hubin, currently alive, an American educator of some note. <laughs> All right. Thank That's you, Perry. Thank you, Perry. You're welcome. And, and could I get in a quick note before we close things out? But of um, course. Just a few days left to vote in the public radio talent quest that I'm in. Yes, yeah, so there, there are a few days left to vote in the public radio talent quest. That is my American Idol-like bid to become the next host of a public radio show so we'll have the link on the notes page go vote for me yay that's all good luck rebecca thank you good luck rebecca good luck rebecca thank all of you for joining <laughs> me once again Good job, so much boy. feeling there <laughs> <laughs> thank you steve good times and have a wonderful independence day everybody you too you steve too. Yep. see you tomorrow steve yep. good night mary ellen yep and until next week this is your skeptic's guide to the universe The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. 
please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Problems, proof, endless delay.